Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracetoeugene.com. Here's the podcast. If you were here last week, then you had a little bit of introduction, but this sermon series is called Misquoted as you see with Casey's wonderful graphic on the screen. What we're doing in Misquoted is we're looking at Bible verses, passages, and concepts that may be misrepresented in the way in which they are conveyed by Christians or people that you like to use Scripture. Believe it or not, there are ways that verses are used that do not actually fit the context and the meaning that they were written with and what they actually mean to us from the writer's perspective. Some of them can be kind of like, well, that's harmless. You know, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding. Some of them can actually do more damage than that. One of the references I gave last week is it can be detrimental to somebody, especially if they're young in their faith and they're just really frustrated with God for not following through on a promise that he never made to them. That it was a promise to somebody else or maybe it wasn't even a promise at all, but because grandma's pillow had it sewed into it or they saw it at Hobby Lobby, they've claimed that promise for themselves and it's not actually something that God was promising to them. Now, that's just one example, but we can see how it's important to understand what the Bible's actually telling us, what we can stand on as something for us, or maybe what's just a biblical principle that is a good way to live our life and good things to pursue. Do you see what I'm saying with this? Apparently not. Um, so... We are diving into this. Last week, we set up this paradigm or, or framework, if you will, that as we look at these verses, at these concepts, if you will, <clears throat> I asked if we would all come to this with humility, pursuing wisdom and truth, because truth sets us free. Historical and tra- traditional interpretations of Scripture don't set us free. Truth does, and we should seek out this truth from a place of humility and wisdom and see what God might reveal to us in the process. Amen? So that's the series. And today I am going to read this scripture for us and then we're going to dive into it. Um, This should be fun. So if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, you can read on the screens. But if you do, please open to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 14. 2 Chronicles 7.14, it says, If my people who are called by my name and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I will heal their land. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're going to reveal to us today. God, I thank you for this opportunity to receive your word, your truth, and your leadership in community. God, this isn't something we have to do on our own. Would you speak to us? Would you uh, invigorate conversation coming out of this time today? And ultimately, God, would we be one step closer to you as we leave this place? We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So this verse uh, is something that well-intentioned Christians 
especially in the United States, love to cite as a promise from God that if believers in this nation would humble themselves and pray, then not only will God fix our nation, but he will bring revival. He will fix our nation and he will bring revival if only as a country our people will do what this verse says. Now, before you get upset with me for implying that that's not what this verse is about, we need to ask ourselves a few questions as we look at this. First of all, we need to ask, what is the context of this verse? What is the context of it? Do you know when these words were spoken, whom they were spoken to, who they were addressing? Do you know the occasion that these words were spoken in and uh, you know, too many times we can just repeat these things and we can kind of hijack them and use them for whatever situation or circumstance we're currently facing. But we need to understand what is the particular situation, people, time, place that this scripture was used in. And I would urge you not to just think through this lens on Sundays when I'm preaching it, but anytime you read the Bible, ask yourselves these questions. So we're going to start out and we're going to look at the context. And for the sake of making sure I hit all the points and don't rabbit trail, because if you've been here long enough, you know I like to do that sometimes, I'm going to be attached a little more to notes here because I want to keep this concise. But the context of this passage is this. King David's son Solomon has assumed the role of the king of Israel. He built this incredible temple for the Lord. He brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of the Lord's presence. And he dedicated the temple before the assembled people of God. Now, this becomes this climatic moment for the people of Israel because God has fulfilled his promise to David. This is a really big deal for them. And as Solomon stands before the people, he delivers this powerful speech topped by a prayer of dedication of the temple. <clears throat> he prays that the Lord would be attentive to his prayers and the prayers of his people that are offered in this place, this place being the temple. That's what he is praying. And he further asks that the Lord would act as the judge and the forgiver of sins and that he would relent from divine judgment such as drought and famine when the people come before him in repentance of their sin. Then Solomon asked the Lord to listen to the prayers of foreigners who seek his face in this temple and that the Lord would bless Israel in a time of war. And then finally, if the Lord should allow Israel to be defeated on account of their sin, he asked God to forgive and maintain their cause when they repent. So he's, he's asking God, would you hear our prayers when we repent? Would you heal us? Would you restore our land? He's praying these things as he dedicates place. And then as he closes his prayer, he appeals to the Lord to definitively act on behalf of this temple, the priests, the people, and himself as the Lord's anointed king. Now in a dramatic visual response and affirmation of Solomon's prayer, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The people fall on their faces as they're overwhelmed by this magnificent event, and they worship the Lord with singing, sac sacrifices, and feasts that last for another week. This was a huge ordeal for them. And then we read that following this, they return to their homes with joy in their hearts, and this is like the glory days of Israel are at an all-time high right now. That's the, the situation we find ourselves in. 
Now as some years pass, Solomon completes his palace as well. And then suddenly, in the middle of the night, the Lord appears to Solomon in private. Now, we don't know how he appears. It's not like one of those moments where, like, in a burning bush, God came to Solomon. It just says he appears to Solomon in the night. And what follows is the Lord's personal response to Solomon's very public prayer years before at the temple. So in private, God is responding to Solomon's public prayer in private years after the completion of the temple. And if we read a few verses before and after verse 14, here's what we see, verses 12 through 15. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who were called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place, being the temple. So there are several things that we need to note in this passage to responsibly steward this scripture. This response is specifically given to Solomon, as I mentioned. He's the king who represents and leads God's chosen people. God's chosen people that are Israel, the nation of Israel. And the place that the Lord is referring to is none other than the temple itself, the house itself. Of sacrifice is the temple. Now, this is significant because the promise that the Lord gives is specifically to this king and these people at this time and in this place. It is a very specific promise. It is not meant to be a general promise that is given to any other nation on the face of the earth where Christians happen to live. No other nation can claim to be God's chosen people, and no other nation today has a temple where the living God dwells in the way that the Old Testament temple did. We need to recognize those things about this situation. And furthermore, notice that the Lord assumes that Israel, or God's people, will sin. He says, when you sin... For he proclaims that there will be times of drought and famine where he sends locusts to devour the land and plagues or diseases to inflict the people or the livestock all as an act of judgment for their sin. Now that makes us a little uncomfortable to read like, man, God sends famine or something on livestock as a judgment for their sin. But this was like a common theme and narrative in the Old Testament scripture in these books that we would read about. So then... He says the Lord will do an amazing thing in response because this judgment will be short-lived if the people who are called by his name will humble themselves, pray, and repent. He's addressing this specific thing here. He says not only will he forgive them for their sin, but he will restore the physical land that was decimated by the physical acts of judgment, which were exampled by drought, locusts, and pestilence. So in other words... Think about it this way. He will restore the land so that it produces rain again, so that the crops and the harvest will nourish and supply the needs of his people. So as an act of judgment for sin, those things will go away. 
But he's saying if you come to this place humbly and you pray and you repent of your sin, I will heal your land, literally physically heal your land so that it will produce life and sustain life again. This particular healing that it's talking about is not spiritual in nature. It's not necessarily spiritual, but it's physical and it pertains to the land itself. The Lord then promises again to hear the prayers offered in the temple and bring continued blessing to Solomon if he remains faithful to walk in accordance with the commands and laws of God. If you know the story of King Solomon, but unfortunately did not walk out faithfully. But as we read this, it's my hope that you can now see a little more of the context of this scripture, what it's actually speaking to, and that it's been kind of plucked out of its context and maybe misused a little bit. Maybe misused a little bit. Now, there are spiritual principles in this scripture, such as humility and repentance and prayer and forgiveness and healing, that are absolutely relevant for us today. But the binding promise of this scripture was for another people in another time in another place. It is not a promise for any nation besides Israel, those who could rightly be called God's people. Furthermore, the healing that's promised is specifically of the physical land. It's of the physical land. And therefore, we can't hijack this idea of healing, generalize it, and then apply it to a promise for spiritual revival for whatever country in which Christians dwell. It is a specific promise for physical healing of the land. And it's a misuse or a misquoting of Scripture for us to say, well, that's just a general healing of our land. And land could be my land. It could be anywhere that Christians dwell. And so this promises revival and spiritual healing and all of this. Now, let me say this. Like all of those biblical concepts, those spiritual concepts that are referenced, will yield those things, but it's not this promise in the context of 2 Chronicles 7.14 that we summon or call God down to do his part if we do ours on. Do you hear me on that? This would be a misuse of the text. But even so, I do want to be clear. I am in no way saying that Christians should refuse to pray for their country, that repentance isn't a big deal, that humility isn't a huge deal, or even that we shouldn't pray for our country and our leaders, because if we don't, that's actually an act of disobedience. For the Apostle Paul, he's talking to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, and he says this. He says, first of all then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, even those we don't like or vote for. I added that. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God is pleased when we pray for all people and those in leadership and high Positions. He is pleased when we intercede for others, for our leaders, for our country. And he also desires to see people humble themselves and repent so that they may be saved through faith in Jesus and come to the knowledge of truth. And if you remember last week, knowledge of the truth that sets you free. Knowledge of the truth that sets you free. 
And then they will join the people of God, which is the church, who are called by his name. Now, additionally, when you become a part of the family of God, a child of God, when you put your faith in him and you repent, you have a new citizenship in a new kingdom. You have a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven that will stand for eternity and not be shaken. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, your primary citizenship is not connected to your mailing address. It's connected to your status before God, the, where your soul will be for eternity. It's connected to that is your primary citizenship. And our world is fallen and broken, and day by day it doesn't seem to be getting any better, at least from my perspective. But Christians can take heart in the fact that this world is not our home or our final destination. The kingdom of heaven with the creator of the universe is our final destination. And one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, until that time comes, we are called to walk faithfully to proclaim the gospel, to pray for our country and its leaders and rejoice in the freedoms that we have the privilege of enjoying. I'm not saying don't cherish or honor or be grateful or even rejoice for the things we do have. What I am saying is those will not last for eternity. They are not attached to your eternal citizenship. They are something that we live in the midst of right now. But we must not mistake the country we live in for now for the kingdom of God. We can't mix the two up. This is where we live now, but it is not the kingdom of God. Even if it is the greatest country on the earth, and even if it was founded on biblical principles that for generations great men and women in service to our country and their fellow countrymen have given their lives for, even if that is the case it is, and even if it is a true biblical principle to be repentant and that that will bring times of refreshing as referenced in Acts 3.19, we need to focus on simultaneously how we live where we're at now, but also keeping an eye on what is our ultimate home. Where are we ultimately headed? What is our primary citizenship? And don't get them mixed up or else we end up having allegiances to the wrong things. And sometimes that can cause us to take Scripture out of context. So, in this sense that repentance does bring times of refreshing and blessing. And we are called to like repent and walk out faithfully how God has called us to live, that we are called to faithfully proclaim the gospel. All of these things that we read in the scripture are principles that we are to heed. In this sense, we should do all these things because they will yield spiritual awakening, healing of brokenness. They can yield revival. They will lead to people coming to know Jesus. So this isn't a message that's saying, nah, don't do that stuff. Just stay at home until Jesus comes back. But what this is saying is this is not a promise that God will bring spiritual revival if you do these things. Being a disciple will yield those things, but claiming 2 Chronicles 7.14 doesn't necessarily summon God to live up his end of the deal if you live and check off all the religious boxes in your life. We should repent. We should believe and pray for God to bring revival, to heal people, to fix relationships and tensions in our land. Those are all noble and great things to be prayed for. 
We want God's forgiveness and healing to rain down in our country, in our cities. I pray for it in my family, for goodness sakes. We want that to happen. But claiming 2 Chronicles 7.14 as the promise that invokes God's promise and guarantee for this to happen in the exact same way as it did with ancient Israel is not an appropriate application. It's not the appropriate application. So then if this is the case, and we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for discipleship, right? Like, we know that Scripture is valuable. Then I don't want to just tell you, like, this isn't what it means, but how should we live then? What does it mean for us now? We should live in a way that applies these principles. Not trying to invoke God's hand, but live this way, doing your part to represent the God of the Bible. To represent Jesus who gave his life for us so that we could be made right before the God of the universe. The way in which we live doesn't change because of this, but the heart of it does. We're not trying to live out some religious thing so that we can earn something from God. We are directing our hearts humbly to repentance and faithfully walking out the call of the gospel and proclaiming it everywhere we would go because we can't help but do that because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We're not doing it because, well, if I do this, then it yields this. This isn't some equation that we're just checking a box off on. We need to take in these principles as our heart direction, and our motive needs to be because of what Christ has done for us, not what can I get God to do for me. Do you hear me on that? This is not some if-then. This is our heart directed and sold out to a God who saves, who has redeemed us, who is working in us and through us. And my goodness, I can't help but share that because of how I've seen it play out in my life. Worship team, you can come back up. <clears throat> we need to realize that God delights in redemption and restoration. That's his plan here on earth, redemption and restoration. <clears throat> In living this way, we get to reflect God's presence, ushering in his mission, his good news through the way we live, through the way in which we interact in our world, through the way in which we contend for purity, goodness, kindness, and holiness, and the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes for your life and the lives around you every day by the power of his Holy Spirit living in you, gifting you, and empowering you. We are called to give each and every day whatever we can, wherever we can, for whomever we can. Whatever you can give, give it because of what you've been given. Wherever you can do that, whoever you can have those conversations with, give it your best. And some days our best seems minuscule compared to other days. Am I right? There's some days where I'm giving my best and I'm like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing that that's my best today. Each day, out of what God has done for you and in you, live with a heart direction that is, I want to represent my Jesus through the way I live, not I want to get him to fulfill some promise that actually wasn't for me this time, this place, in this country. The concepts, the principles 
are absolutely spot on. Do we want revival in our country? I do. I want a move of God in this place like we've never seen. I pray for it. I try to have conversations and we, we try to intercede for that to happen. But the way to do that is by the way we live our lives, by the direction of our heart, through our prayer life, through caring about the mission of God, not through standing on a verse that is misquoted. So I wanna urge you today, as you hear this, you might have a few different responses internally, or maybe they wanna come out externally. And maybe your response is, well, I, I, I don't know. <clears throat> I, I maybe see that different. Um, this is new for me. I'm wrestling with this. There's a lot of different ways we can receive a message like this. But I wanna ask you, will you humbly direct your heart to living in a way that represents Jesus, reflects him everywhere that you would go and engages in his mission and his redemptive purpose here on earth? Would that be your focus? Imagine for a moment, if you will, what this city, what our campuses, our workplaces, even for, for my biological family, what it could look like if I consistently lived that way, spoke that way, reflected that everywhere I go, in every conversation I can, giving whatever I can, wherever I am. Just imagine the difference that could make if we didn't have to have conversations every week of, oh, I can't stand Christians. And like, well, no, but it's because we're broken and, you know, there's still we're still people. And like, yes, we are still people. But think of how many conversations we have to defend the church when the issue is, will you follow Jesus? Like we have to spend so much time defending lifestyles and words said and all these things. Imagine if we could just amp up our consistency one notch, the impact that would make. And I'm not trying to say, hey, be a Pharisee, act perfect all the time. But what I am saying is don't settle for where you're currently at. Trust God to upgrade you, to upgrade your faithfulness, to help you walk that out more consistently, not by your own power or might, but by the power of his spirit in you. And I do wanna paint a picture for you of what that could look like in coming alongside God's redemptive purpose in the places that he has you. So family, I urge you, don't live your life just on trying to do certain things religiously so that it will invoke God like he owes you and has to do something about it. Live your life in a way that is an overflow of what he's done in you, that you represent him in your conversations, your life, your work, your rest, your family, and then be willing to have honest conversations about that with those around you. And I assure you, there will be fruit from that and it will be fruit that lasts, amen? Let's pray, God, thank you for your word. God, I thank you that even in things that are misunderstood, you still bring light, you still bring hope, you still bring perspective. And so God, I thank you that even though maybe this verse can be taken out of context, there is still plenty for us to learn from it. God, I thank you that you didn't give up on us. I thank you that you didn't give up on me. And I thank you for second chances and I thank you for the way in which you use relationships to bring light to those opportunities. So would you use us to reflect who you are? 
would you be stirring in our hearts so that this wouldn't just be a religious expression, but it would be a relational expression out of what we've received from you. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close in worship.